it is a little bit after, it's a couple of weeks after the 50th anniversary of Nixon's visit to Beijing. And uh, the visit is celebrated as a uh, radically unexpected démarche turn in international affairs. Uh, in fact, it had definitely been prepared the year before by what was called the ping pong diplomacy. Of uh, uh, there was a uh, uh, visit of ping pong teams. I can't remember which way around it was. Ping pong teams went. Um, and then Kissinger, in fact, visited China in uh, uh, 1971, preparatory to the uh, uh, visit of uh, Nixon to China. Um, the turn, indeed, uh, is also not uh, uh, as unexpected or secret or anything like that. Um, I'm going to start in an odd place, which is with a quote from a uh, detective novel, uh, Emma Lathan, Murder Against the Grain, uh, is a story, it's one of a series of uh, very lightweight detective stories with uh, Wall Street bankers as the uh, detectives and central characters uh, and the murders are invariably, well not quite invariably, but pretty much invariably motivated by uh, financial gain. Uh, and in this case, we start with uh, the Sloan Garanti Trust who has been defrauded of $985,000 uh, by somebody who proves to be able to have the ability to forge um, uh, US Soviet shipping documents for the purposes of uh, uh, the um, uh, trade deals which had recently been made between the US and the Soviet Union. And uh, George C. Lancer, the president of the chairman, uh, sorry, of the board of the bank, uh, hopes that he can pass off some of this loss onto the uh, correspondent bank uh, in uh, abroad. Um, and he's phoned up by the guys from uh, uh, Foggy Bottom, the uh, US State Department. My God remonstrated the long distance line from Washington. Do you want to play into the hands of the Chinese? Lancer, who occasionally wrote articles on international events for foreign affairs, hastily denied the charge. Hadn't he be one of the first to recommend exploitation of the Sino-Soviet Sino-Soviet rift? Uh, and this book is published, in fact, in um, uh, 1967. Also published in 1967, and in fact, coincidentally, in foreign affairs, which is uh, uh, um, after having found the uh, Emma Latham quote, which showed that exploiting the Sino-Soviet writ was in the air in the United States in 1967. In October 1967, Richard Nixon published an article in Foreign Affairs, which argued precisely for exploiting the Sino-Soviet writ, and among other things, uh, uh, drawing the Chinese into uh, uh, the uh, concert of nations, the, uh, the general uh, international affairs. So that 1971-72 uh, 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 is uh, a turn which uh, certainly caught a substantial part of the left, and particularly the part of the left which had regarded the uh, Chinese as being to the left of the Soviets uh, by surprise. Um, but it clearly isn't a term which caught uh, American foreign policy actors by surprise, or indeed one which uh, uh, was outside of the scope of thought of uh, 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 literary um, writers uh, uh, in, no, I won't say literary writers, that's an exaggeration of uh, writers in the United States. What was the content of the deal made between uh, uh, in Nixon's visit to China. Mm -hmm. uh, in essence, uh, we don't know an awful lot about it, but the public communique uh, consists in substance uh, over an agreement to disagree. Now, it's a really important agreement to disagree. Um, and uh, it, the, the important, it's important agreement to disagree, partly because the uh, disagreement is still with us. Uh, that is, the United States view as of uh, 1971, and indeed arguably still is, that China and Taiwan are one country which has one legitimate government, which is the government in Taipei. 
that's the capital of Taiwan, which was as, as of 1971, Kuomintang government. I can't remember, I don't, haven't looked up which party is currently in government in uh, Taipei. Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, that the, the uh, uh, administration in Beijing is a rebel administration uh, which uh, is in need of uh, being disposed of and regime change and the restoration of order, which is Kuomintang government. Mm. Uh, the Chinese, on the other hand, their point of view uh, is and has been ever since 1949, uh, that Taiwan is a part of China and there is one legitimate government, which is the Chinese government in Beijing. Mm -hmm. So what they did in 1972 was to agree to disagree on this question, but that they recognized that they both agreed that there was one country, which was China. And the recognition that they both agreed which, that there was one country, which was China, um, uh, uh, enabled the series of steps which wound up with, for example, the Security Council seat, uh, which had in, the United States had in fact held on to Taipei having the Security Council seat, it became Beijing that had the Security Council seat. Okay, so the immediate proposition essentially is uh, the United States, while never conceding full legitimacy of the Chinese government, nonetheless conceded enough legitimacy of the Chinese government that Taipei, Taiwan, has been held in a degree of limbo uh, for, I won't say the last 50 years, but for a very substantial period of time. Okay, there's very substantial larger uh, implications of this. Uh, the most obvious uh, of which at the time was that in 1973-4, uh, the Chinese government backed the Pinochet coup in Chile. Yeah. And that was a sudden moment at which we suddenly realized, Jesus Christ, the Chinese have gone over to alliance with uh, US imperialism. Yeah. That in turn gave rise to a... Uh, uh, a a uh, very substantial crisis of uh, the Western Maoist organizations. Uh, how people responded uh, varied. One of the ways was uh, to replace uh, uh, Chinese-led Maoism with uh, Albanian-led versions. Uh, there are a series of other different responses of one sort and another, but there was a, a, a general crisis. Secondly, uh, going along with this change, when the Vietnamese uh, intervened in 1978 uh, against the Khmer Rouge government in uh, 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 Cambodia, uh, the uh, Chinese uh, counter-intervened by invading uh, northern Vietnam. Thirdly, um, the Chinese, the open, open turn of the Chinese to uh, political solidarity with the United States, uh, very substantial, had very substantial implications for Soviet military budgets, because the implication of the um, uh, turn of the Chinese to solidarity with the United States was that the uh, uh, Soviet Union had to budget for uh, deterrence on both fronts, both the East and West, against two nuclear armed powers, the US, the USA and China. And that is part of the moment uh, of, it's not a whole of it, but it's an important part of the moment of which we move into uh, the process whereby the uh, Soviet budget was busted um, uh, uh, because of the sheer amount of money that they spent uh, trying to keep up with the Americans on uh, armaments. Uh, um, finally, not immediately as a result of 1972, but not very long after, 1978, uh, agricultural decollectivization and uh, legalization of uh, small-scale private industry uh, in China um, 
and as a result of that, uh, more extensive privatizations and uh, quote economic reforms in the 1980s. Uh, the United States expected that to lead to um, uh, that that market economy would lead to market uh, to 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 quote democracy democratic government unquote and that that was going to happen as a result of the Tiananmen Square events in 1989. Uh, but in fact, the Tiananmen Square events were successfully repressed by the Chinese Communist Party, and though they didn't retreat from uh, market reforms, market opening, and so on and so forth. Uh, they did uh, insist on keeping the state strong. And uh, the, there is a profound difference in the sense that uh, the Soviet Union in the wake of 1989-91 and much of Eastern Europe, we get uh, uh, Chicago boys shock therapy and collapse. Uh, the Chinese refused to go down that road, although it was heavily pressed on them by United States economic advisors. They should go down the road of economic shock therapy. Instead, they insisted on following broadly a Japanese path of uh, market economy, but market economy heavily steered by uh, the central state. And so we move into uh, where we are now. Um, and uh, the events of 1971-72 uh, are an important stage in that uh, in the process of getting to where we are now, both in relation to the relations between the United States and China, the relations between the United States and Russia, uh, the uh, general uh, demoralization, disorientation of the left, the sense of failure, all of these various things. Uh, uh, 1972 is uh, an important uh, turning point as far as this is concerned. What's the background to this turn? And the background to this turn, I think, has two sides to it, um, which we need to be aware of in terms of understanding what the implications are today. Mm -hmm. uh, the first side of it is. Uh, United States geopolitics and uh, the United States' doctrines, doctrines of the US state about China in connection with US geopolitics. Yeah. Uh, the other side is uh, the doctrine of socialism in one country and the implications of the doctrine of socialism in one country in the development of the Sino-Soviet split, because it's the Sino-Soviet split kicking off in the late 1950s um, uh, and uh, taking becoming decisive in the 1960s, uh, which uh, uh, provides the setting for uh, Nixon's day march and the uh, 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 turn of the Chinese uh, leadership to uh, alliance with the United States. Mm -hmm. So if we start with the United States. Uh, the first, the starting point is the, quote, open door policy. We start in 1899. Uh, the European powers, uh, Japan had just defeated China in uh, the War of 1895, and the next, uh, as a result of that, Taiwan. China, therefore, was now seen as a sick man of Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, Germany annexed uh, the Kachau Peninsula. Um, the British had already previously acquired uh, Hong Kong and uh, the new territories of Hong Kong. Portugal had had uh, Macau since the 16th century. Um, but China was now seen as the sick man of Asia in the same way that the Ottoman Empire was seen as the sick man of Europe. And the question was posed, how is China going to be cut up? And there were negotiations at length between the various European powers about how to cut up China into distinct spheres of influence. Who would get the concession to build railways here? Who would get the uh, rights of access to uh, Chinese agricultural pro produce there? 
where would there be uh, colonization? Um, would Manchuria um, become uh, fully uh, Russianized or would it become Jap Japan held? Uh, would Korea become uh, Japan held or Russianized and so on and so forth? In this context, the policy adopted by the United States was one which they called the open door policy. That is to say that the state of China should be kept intact, uh, but it should be kept intact on terms that it didn't have any right to impose protective tariffs or regulations, which would in any way impede free trade. So that trade with China should be free uh, in order to allow all the different uh, European states and the United States itself uh, to uh, 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 have free access to the Chinese markets. This open door policy was not at the time of asking the British policy, but it had been the British policy at the time when the British fought uh, the two opium wars with China uh, in the um, 1830s and 1850s in order to enforce the Chinese government to accept uh, uh, the right of British drug traffickers uh, trading out of India to sell Indian opium uh, into the uh, Chinese market. So the, the open door policy uh, was American policy in uh, created in 1899. There's a, you can find uh, cartoons, American cartoons and other, in fact, um, also equally German SPD cartoons about the various, the, the, the policies of the uh, West trying to cut up China. Um, the open door policy continued to be American policy all the way through to uh, 1947. And it led to the result that the Americans were considerably more hostile than the British were to uh, Japanese, the Japanese war on China uh, in the 1930s, and that the Americans backed the KMT regime, moved rapidly to back the KMT regime, Kuomintang, that's the Chinese Nationalist Party, uh, in the uh, late 1930s, early 1940s. And indeed, uh, Roosevelt's um, economic sanctions against Japan, uh, cutting off oil supplies to Japan, which were intended to provoke and did in fact provoke the Japanese to launch a military attack on the United States, which would allow the United States to enter the war, is informed by the interests of the United States in its alliance with the Kuomintang. Um, arising out of this background, uh, it is US naval doctrine and indeed continues to be US naval doctrine. It's most it's explicitly stated in documents from the 1940s, but it is still US naval doctrine that unfettered access to the coastline of China is an essential security interest of the United States. Uh, so this doctrine therefore implies that the China must be either a subordinate ally of the United States, or if it's not going to be a subordinate ally of the United States, the United States does not recognize the right of China to uh, significant territorial waters. So the, well, the open door policy is one element of this. The second element is uh, the, the United States itself. Uh, the United States is the new Rome or thinks of the, the United States state, uh, the guys, state actors think of themselves as uh, the new Rome. They think of themselves as the new Roman Republic. They formulate uh, stories of decline, which are stories of the decline of the Republic and the collapse of the Republic into well, the tyranny of Augustus and so on and so forth. But they also think of themselves as the Republic in their relations with uh, foreign powers. There are Soki, the Roman Republic had Soki allies who were very unambiguously subordinate allies. And then there are Hostes, H-O-S-T-E-S, -E the enemies who are people who are not, anybody who isn't an ally in Roman law uh, is an enemy. 
And the hostes are usually, for ideological purposes, characterized as barbaroi, barbari, barbari in Latin, barbaroi in Greek, uh, barbarians. And uh, there are, we have a, a, a fairly large, although we have uh, noble savage stories from the historian Tacitus writing around 100 AD, um, we also have an awful lot of uh, um, stories of the uh, barbarity and uh, un, un inhumane character of the barbarians and the enemies of the Romans and so on and so forth. Soki uh, allies who revolt become hostes. It isn't enough that just that they become, that they revolt. Um, if they get above themselves in one way or another, uh, either direct or indirect force will be used against them. And just a very late example, uh, the Visigothic king Alaric II, whose kingdom was in uh, southwestern France, uh, issued a codification of the law in 506, 506 uh, common era. That was a usurpation of a claimed imperial prerogative. So the Emperor Anastasius, the government of the Emperor Anastasius in Constantinople paid the Franks who lived in what's now northern France uh, to attack uh, the Visigoths. The US thinks of itself in, this, in these terms that there are allies who are very definitely subordinate and periodically it's necessary to remind the allies of their subordination. One of the things which this war in Ukraine is doing is reminding the European allies of their subordination. And there are enemies uh, against whom anything goes. Um, there is a strategic characteristic of uh, the uh, position that the uh, empire is in, the American empire is in, which is to say that they are in the center and the allies and the opponents are on the periphery. And because they are in the center and the allies and opponents are on the periphery, they inherently have the initiative and the allies and the opponents do not have and cannot have the initiative because in order to have the initiative, uh, they would have to combine against uh, the imperial center. Now, this is a slightly odd thing to say because the center here is the sea. The center is the international trading system. And the periphery is the things which are at the periphery of uh, the international trading system. This is the opposite. The Americans actually have and use uh, the geopolitics of Halford Mackinder. And Mackinder argued precisely from the point of view that somebody who controls the center controls the periphery by virtue of inherently having the initiative and the interior lines of communication. Uh, Mackinder argued that who controls the heartland, which means um, the, the area between Ukraine uh, uh, and Central Asia, who controls the heartland controls the world island, which is Europe and Asia as a whole, who controls the world island controls the world. In fact, it was untrue because the center uh, is the, uh, the center of trading and uh, the periphery is, 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 is land communications as opposed to uh, uh, sea communications. And that continues to be the case. Uh, it was obviously the case in uh, pre before the invention of railways, uh, but it continues to be the case even after the invention of railways and road transport and so on and so forth, because uh, the sheer scale on which sea transport can operate is so much higher uh, than uh, road transport, let alone air transport. Yeah. So the United States has the initiative and the fact that the United States as controls the center by virtue of its naval dominance and its dominance of the international trading structure has the consequence uh, 
that that it has the initiative and you can never quite it's 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 not a choice which is available to people who wish to oppose the united states as to when and whether the United States will launch an attack on them, because precisely because the United States controls the center, it controls the initiative, uh, it isn't possible uh, to uh, just say, okay, we will stand, stay out, we will sit, sit, sit things out and wait for uh, the United States to decay, because then they will launch an attack on you. Uh, in some way which you don't necessarily, quite often in some way which you don't necessarily expect. Okay, so uh, the geopolitics of the United States in relation to China, therefore, uh, um, has historically was, we want, uh, uh, China's an intact uh, state, but with uh, open trade. But the underlying proposition is that the United States should retain control, geopolitical control, and it retains geopolitical control uh, through its unambiguous uh, naval and aerospace uh, supremacy and its control of the uh, international trading system. And uh, the question about uh, what to do about China, Nixon's China turn, uh, uh, is about the predominance of US geopolitical imperatives over the uh, open, uh, uh, op open door policy in relation to China as of the late 1960s, early 1970s. That preponderance, that possibility is made possible uh, in essence because of uh, the Sino-Soviet split, as I said before. Uh, the Americans are exploiting the Sino-Soviet split. Where does the Sino-Soviet split come from? Again, we have to actually go back uh, to the late 19th century. Uh, and we can see two things which connect to each other in the late 19th century. One of which is uh, <coughs> the escape from British control uh, of successively France, uh, Germany, and the, France, the United States, and Germany. In France, the escape from British control is the overthrow of the um, uh, parliamentary monarchy of uh, Louis Philippe uh, at this first stage, first a revolutionary crisis, but then uh, the creation of the Bonapartist regime. Uh, the creation of the Bonapartist regime in 1851 uh, escapes from British control. The British control operates because uh, parliamentary rule of law regimes yield as such the dictatorship of capital in its monetary form, expressed in the form of uh, the sale and denial of justice through the free market in legal services, the routine bribery of uh, uh, politicians, and uh, the essentially corrupt character of advertising-funded media oligopolies. This is a regime which was created in the reign of Queen Anne, more or less, approximately in England. And uh, uh, the application of this sort of liberal regime produced radical subordination to Britain. It also did so in the United States through um, the uh, rule of law regime giving uh, 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 veto power to the uh, southern states whose economy was tied into Britain through the uh, 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 their character as uh, colonial extractive economies um, feeding uh, the British uh, industry with raw materials. Um, in the United States, uh, what happens in 1861-65 is a completion of the bourgeois revolution in the sense that uh, northern U.S. capital defeats, mobilizes itself and the northern working class to defeat the uh, uh, slaveocracy and thereby break free of the chains which Britain had imposed on it. Uh, the, in Germany and in France, 
what happens is that uh, the creation of a uh, state with a strong executive, high levels of credentialism and um, uh, quote equality of opportunity and uh, artificial preservation of the peasantry creates a social block around nationalism, which in France is Louis Bonaparte's Principe de Nationalité and in Germany is uh, German unification and uh, the Second Reich, yeah. uh, which is capable of standing up to outside of and, and against, to some extent, uh, British power, uh, for which reason there's a whole history which we almost has almost become hidden from history of uh, British uh, war scares about French war with Britain between the 1850s and the 1880s. Um, we don't, uh, we, we, we've lost that because of the First and Second World Wars and the Entente Cordiale and all of that stuff, but it, it was there. Yeah. <coughs> so the idea of obtaining national autonomy with through a strong state regime yeah. and the national autonomy through a strong state regime enables you to partially exclude not wholly exclude but partially exclude uh, the normal methods by which money controls politics in capitalist society which would normally yield that the monetary power of the lead capitalist state which at that time was britain uh, is in control yeah. Uh, the, the Bonapartist model provides a partial escape from that. Secondly, uh, in the Second International, uh, we have the idea of uh, socialism in one country. This is not an invention of Joseph Stalin or anybody else in the Russian Communist Party in the, the 1920s. It's uh, goes back uh, at least to uh, von Volmar, but probably to von Volmar's book, Das Isolierte Sozialistische Staat, The Isolated Socialist State in the 1870s, uh, but certainly to uh, Karl Kautsky's arguments in uh, his uh, book, Introducing the Effort Program, uh, translated in English as, quote, the class struggle, uh, Kautsky argues that socialism will res result, result in a reduction of international trade and an increased development of uh, autarkic economic development of, uh, of, of nation states. And Kautsky similarly argued uh, the centrality of uh, the nation state uh, in uh, his piece Nationality and Internationality, which uh, Ben Lewis translated some years ago in the uh, 1900s, his contribution to the debate on the national question uh, in the 1900s in the Second International. So the idea of socialism in one country, of socialist, socialism in one country, is already present in the ideas of the Second International. In the Third International, uh, we kick off uh, with a, 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 an internationalist gamble. Now, October 1917 is a gamble on the uh, victory of the revolution in Western Europe. But having kicked off with this uh, internationalist gamble, uh, the Germans don't arrive. And because the Germans don't arrive, um, the Germans don't arrive, the Austrians don't arrive, the Hungarians arrive, but they're defeated and so on. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Comintern shifts towards an orientation uh, which is designed to raise up the uh, nationalist sentiments of the oppressed colonial countries against the uh, imperialist centers. It's not a, it's a perfectly reasonable strategic choice as a, it's a entirely reasonable strategic choice. Um, and uh, it, it makes particular sense because the victor powers in the Second World War, uh, France accepted, so Britain and the United States, uh, actually no, France as well, Britain, the United States and France all invaded Russia in 1918 in order to overthrow the uh, Bolshevik uh, regime and continued intervention operations uh, against the Bolsheviks in the Civil War and through till uh, 1921. 
and the British imposed sanctions. Uh, the British and French imposed uh, financial and economic sanctions on the Bolshevik regime even after 1921, which were not lifted. Um, so strategic, it looked like a good, good reasonable strategic bet uh, to promote anti-imperialist struggles uh, and in particular, more generally nationalism in the uh, oppressed colonial countries. And that was the policy adopted in the Congress of the Peoples of the East, and then thereafter Second Congress of Comintern and remained uh, a central feature of the policy of Comintern. And after the dissolution of Comintern, indeed continued to be uh, a central feature of Soviet uh, policy all the way down to uh, the point at which uh, uh, the United States manages to uh, exploit it to trip uh, the Russians up in uh, Afghanistan. Um, now, in the, after 1970, uh, after uh, in, in 79-80. Now, um, going along with this, of course, is why did the Reds win the Civil War? And the answer is not just the Reds won the Civil War. Uh, because they got the peasantry on side, which is also the case that the uh, the whites were so deeply the white side in the Russian Civil War was so deeply committed to landlordism that they found found it impossible to actually get the peasantry on side, whereas the Reds could get the peasantry at least temporarily part of the time on side, but also actually that the Reds won over really quite substantial block of uh, the. Uh, professional middle classes, and they did so because they offered uh, Russian national, the restoration of Russian national power. And in fact, one of the things they were forced to do, they didn't, they set out, the Bolsheviks set out to adopt a radical uh, self-determination policy, but all the various uh, nationalities who they gave self-determination to promptly went over to the side of the uh, in the case of uh, Ukraine and Georgia to the side of the German uh, occupying power. Uh, and uh, in the case of the others, uh, mostly uh, to, uh, and also of the, um, the Baltics and Finland, and in most of the others to the uh, side of the allies. So that then in order to survive, just in order to survive, uh, uh, they, it was necessary uh, for the Russian Red Army to reconquer by main force most of the territory of the uh, uh, former Tsarist Empire. There wasn't any other choice. As long as the Westerners didn't impose regime change, didn't overthrow their governments, the only way to uh, for the regime, Bolshevik regime to survive was to conquer the uh, former territories of the former Tsarist Empire and get the uh, uh, <clears throat> white armies uh, destroy the white armies and get the intervention policy to give up by main force. Okay, uh, but then the consequence which uh, uh, Lenin is very much, was very much concerned with in the uh, uh, last period of his life was uh, Russian, great Russian chauvinists, Russian nationalism, that uh, what they were doing was promoting Russian nationalism. Russian nationalism was part of the ingredients of their success. Yeah. And uh, the national question then becomes a perennial problem, continue, is in fact a perennial problem of uh, the uh, uh, Soviet Union uh, ever ever thereafter. But the flip side of it is, as I said, that uh, the policy of um, encouraging nationalism against the uh, imperial powers, the Congress of the Peoples of the East, Second Congress of the Comintern on the national colonial question, uh, does in fact yield um, explosive growth of communist parties uh, in uh, very, very many colonial countries including and most spectacularly in China. Now, okay, 
China then winds up with its, I'm not going to go into the the narrative of the history of the Chinese revolution at great length, but it winds up with the case, it being the case uh, that the Chinese Communist Party takes power in China in 1947-49. Slightly ambiguous, uh, the 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 russians it's very ambiguous what the intentions of the uh, russian leadership were but on the face of it it looks as though the chinese communist party acted on its own it's almost certainly not true because the uh, russians could have cut off the flow of supply of arms to the uh, uh, chinese red army Um, but we get at the end of uh, the Second World War, uh, Moscow sets out to achieve a glacis around Russia of uh, neutral, neutralized countries with friendly governments. That is not acceptable to the United States. It's not acceptable to the United States for the obvious reasons which I talked about already in relation to US geopolitics. And just as the United States wanted free access to the coastline of China, it also insisted that it was an essential security interest of the United States, that it should have naval access to the Danube. And the insistence of the United States that it should have naval access to the Danube in 1946-47 produces a turn on the part of the Stalin leadership in the USSR, where they say, no, we're not going to preserve the uh, forms of uh, bourgeois rule with friendly friendly but neutral governments. We're going to let loose or directly, either we're going to directly ourselves Sovietize these countries, or we're going to let loose the local communist party, which is what they did in uh, Poland. And I guess also what they did uh, in a sense in China. They let loose the CPC and the CPC, the Kuomintang regime collapsed. Uh, the Kuomintang fled to Taiwan and realized until looking at this stuff that Taiwan had an antecedent population of 6 million and one and a half million Kuomintang refugees, adding a full 20% of the population uh, went into Taiwan after the country was surrendered to the by the Japanese to China and then couple of years later, the Chinese regime fell to the Chinese Red Army. Okay, so uh, the agenda on the basis of which this is uh, being conducted is uh, nationalism, both in the forms of national autonomy from the imperialist powers, the national struggle against the imperialist powers, and uh, socialism in one country, and uh, uh, peaceful coexistence uh, as a uh, global general framework that the the, uh, capitalist class is to be overthrown state by state and not uh, as a uh, global phenomenon. But then the consequence of this is that this uh, involves uh, very substantial tension uh, between the interests and ideas of uh, the leaderships of all the different individual, uh, quote, communist, unquote, regimes. This kicks off first with Yugoslavs who uh, refused to play ball with the uh, 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 Moscow government's uh, particular demands of them and started uh, to play uh, footsie with the West already in the uh, late 19, very late 1940s, early 1950s. Um, it, it's not only the Yugoslavs, they, there are tensions all across throughout the period. There are tensions uh, which ex- explode at different points in time between uh, the uh, uh, Soviet Union and the various uh, satellite states and indeed, of course, tensions within the Soviet Union in relation to the constituent republics of the Soviet Union, and so on and so on. And the idea of socialism in one country, socialist development in one country, carries with it uh, 
the idea of uh, political autarky and the idea of uh, the the within the framework of peaceful coexistence it should be possible uh, for individual socialist states to maneuver uh, as between the uh, uh, the imperialists and uh, the uh, Soviet Union, or indeed the imperialists and each other. Um, and it's in this context uh, that the Sino-Soviet split emerges. Uh, I fairly recently read, I, well, I've read a, in the course of doing this, an article which quite interestingly argues that what triggers the Sino-Soviet split uh, is the um, uh, supremacy of the United, su massive superiority of the United States in uh, uh, nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons delivery of apparatus in the 1950s. The consequence of which is that the uh, Chinese not having nuclear weapons is a serious problem for Chinese national autonomy. But at the same time, conversely, the Russians decide that they need uh, under Khrushchev although it's originally proposed by Malenkov, um, Khrushchev uh, defeats Malenkov by talking left, but uh, then adopts Malenkov's policy, it's necessary to be go for detente towards the West, and we get uh, de-Stalinization. And um, uh, as part of that, actually, the, the Russians begin to squeeze the Chinese in relation to uh, technical assistance. The Chinese, meanwhile, uh, hang on to uh, the Stalin idea, uh, Stalin the great leader, and so on and so forth. And indeed, actually, this is happening, that the Russians are taking this term at more or less the same time. Uh, that the Chinese are embarking on uh, their first five-year plan project and uh, forced collectivization of agriculture. And then uh, in 1958-61, the Chinese embark on the, quote, Great Leap Forward, uh, a more extreme version of, uh, it's the second five-year plan in China, technically, but what it actually is, is a more extreme version of uh, the five-year plan and forced collectivization in Russia. And it has worse consequences in terms of uh, economic dislocation uh, and deaths by famine and so on and so forth than the uh, five-year plan and the forced collectivization had had in Russia. In, immediately after deciding to abandon Great Leap Forward policy, uh, the Chinese leadership embarks on a war with India over borders. This is again, this is a running issue and it's reappeared in the uh, present, in, in, in the recent past, in this time, in the form of, as far as I can see, in the form of Indian aggression against China over the border question. Um, but the war with uh, India over, the, over borders exacerbates the antagonism between the uh, uh, Chinese and the Russians because the Russians, for their own geostrategic reasons, have been uh, pursuing uh, alliance with the uh, Congress uh, government in India. And uh, they choose uh, to side with the, with, the, with the Indians on the border dispute between uh, um, uh, uh, China and India. Uh, that's a sort of sharp turning point because it's one, it's one thing to have a large idea, to have disputes about how much economic assistance is going from Russia to China, or indeed, which at one point was 7% of Russian GDP was being spent on economic assistance to China. It's one, one thing to have uh, loud polemics about de-Stalinization, which the uh, uh, Chinese denounced as revisionism and so on and so forth. It's another thing to be on, opposite sides in relation to a shooting war, even if it's a, frankly, rather a small shooting war. Step the next uh, is 1966 and the launch of the Cultural Revolution in China. And uh, the launch of the Cultural Revolution in China, which then rapidly spins out of control, um, 
the uh, PLA is introduced, the Chinese People's Liberation Army is introduced into politics on a big scale in order to bring it under control uh, in 1968. And again, after the failure, second failure of this violent, voluntaristic, ultra-leftist economic policy, uh, we get uh, uh, a war policy. In this case, actually, China, 1969, goes to war with the Soviet Union uh, on a small scale, again, uh, both on the border of uh, 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 the, the uh, eastern borders and on the Xinjiang, uh, the border in Xinjiang, Xinjiang between uh, 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 China and the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, this uh, Sino-Soviet war, um, how we're to explain it is not entirely clear. There are different stories from uh, the Russian and from the Chinese side, uh, but the predominant view is that this was unprovoked Chinese aggression and that it was well, it's not unprovoked because it's lying behind it was that the Russians were asserting Tsarist imperial borders uh, and indeed asserting Tsarist imperial borders which had jumped beyond uh, the normal legalities of the fixing of borders under international law that instead of fixing the border in the middle of the river they fixed it on the Chinese side of the river. Um, However, nonetheless, as of 1969, the Chinese kicked it off and uh, the uh, probable explanation of the Chinese kicking it off is two things. One, that uh, they needed a distraction from the failure of the Cultural Revolution. But two, and perhaps equally significant, that they were signaling to the United States uh, that there was a real antagonism between uh, China and the Soviet Union, and that this, that, 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 that this was not just a matter of uh, uh, superficial polemical exchanges of one sort and another, as it might have been represented to be, I think, down to the point of the uh, India-China war. Um, and certainly, as some people still represented it to be, so um, uh, Brzezinski, uh, speaking of Brzezinski, uh, uh, went on years after everybody else recognized there was a Sino-Soviet rift, uh, uh, publishing stuff which denied it existed and claiming that it was all uh, uh, cover for what was really a uh, Chinese-Soviet alliance. Okay, so 69 uh, Sino-Soviet war and uh, then um, the most murky episode in the whole story is the liquidation of Marshal Lin Piao, uh, who died mysteriously in an air crash uh, together with his family and uh, was uh, then accused of having attempted to mount a coup against Mao uh, and to flee to the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, what the hell is going on? about that uh, nobody knows there are diverse points of view but it's certainly the case that that whatever the hell that does it's going to shift because Lin Piao was the guy who was in charge of the Chinese PLA intervention to uh, calm things down after the Cultural Revolution it's clearly going to shift the uh, balance of political forces in the uh, Chinese uh, leadership and then we get Bang, where we came, where we began. Uh, the um, semi-secret negotiations, the ping-pong diplomacy, the Kissinger visit in uh, 1971 and uh, the Nixon visit in 1972, and the Chinese change sides and become uh, uh, allies of the United States in uh, geopolitics. Now, as I said, um, as I said right at the beginning, there's an issue which is uh, there and outstanding, of course, which is that the US's geopolitics towards China, apart from uh, the considerations which led it to ally with China against the Soviet Union and use that as a 
big, big lever to pull down the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, the US, the underlying position of the US is geopolitics towards China is that China should be a neo-colony uh, with an open market uh, 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 controlled by uh, US finance. That's the meaning of the open door policy. That's the meaning of the doctrine that the US Navy needs uh, US national security requires US free naval access to the coastline of China. Uh, that's the meaning, in fact, of all the various anti-China stuff which has been going on uh, in the last period. And in fact, I think that's probably also at the end of the day. Uh, at one level, it, the, the uh, aim of the uh, uh, Ukraine war is the end game of uh, Brzezinski's uh, chessboard in which uh, the Russian uh, Republic is to be broken up into component parts and after that actually even the Russian language part of it to be partitioned in some way to create among other things a Siberian Republic um, as a wonderful um, science fiction by a guy called John Barnes called Mother of Storms, in which, among other things, the United States has, has indeed broken up uh, Russia, and there is an independent Siberian Republic, which is a crazy organization. Um, but leave that one, uh, leave that one to be. Lying behind that is the need of the United States to take back from China the amount of development which the Chinese have been permitted, and at least to encircle China in the same way uh, that the uh, uh, aggressively encircle China in the same way that the British aggressively encircled Germany uh, in um, uh, uh, Eight, uh, in between the 1890s and 1914. And uh, the, um, so that the Taiwan question and the unresolved, the, the stuff which was left as uh, agreement to disagree in the uh, Nixon, um, Nixon Mao meetings, in the Nixon in Beijing meetings is now, uh, live, hard, uh, potential casus belli uh, issues. Um, the other side of this coin is, hey, what about socialism in one country? And the answer is, socialism in one country failed. And it failed precisely because what it produced was competition between the uh, leaderships of the various different quote socialist unquote countries for the favor of the United States. The Sino-Soviet split was driven by uh, the, 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 the Maoists were quite correct to say that the Sino-Soviet split was driven in the first place by the Khrushchevites conciliating the United States which they were conciliating the United States perfectly sensibly because the United States had um, uh, absolute superiority in uh, uh, nuclear weapons delivery. Uh, that shifted with uh, it later, it shifted somewhat around about 1970 or thereabouts, but um, it, mutual assured destruction only actually became the case in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Um, but Nonetheless, it was the case that the Russians were prepared to sacrifice the Chinese by cutting back on their, uh, the aid they were giving to the Chinese for the sake of uh, uh, partly in connection with conciliating the United States. Uh, conversely, the Chinese then embark on uh, socialism in one country in the form of trying to build socialism on Chinese resources alone without external support. That is what the Great Leap Forward, and that is what the Cultural Revolution were attempts to do. But the Great, but they fail, and they fail because actually it doesn't work like that. Uh, complicated industrial industrial 
industrial development never, ever happened in one country on the basis of the resources of one country alone. And uh, <coughs> socialist development in a single country is in fact illusory. Part of the reason why there was starvation in uh, the period of forced collectivization and why there was also starvation in the period of uh, uh, the Great Leap Forward uh, was that the uh, governments in question had to keep exporting grain. And they had to keep exporting grain at the expense of starving the peasantry, because if they were to pursue their industrialization policy, they needed to buy the tech from overseas. Mm -hmm. So socialism in one country, the failure of uh, the, the Sino-Soviet split, the Sino-Soviet wars, the ability of the United States to uh, maneuver between Russia and China, and to, turned out it's not the case that the uh, uh, communist, the socialist countries can maneuver between the rival imperialist powers, but that the imperialist center, which is a one center, whether that one center is the Netherlands in the 17th century or Britain in the 18th and 19th or the United States in the later 20th and 21st, that one center gets to maneuver between the rival nationalists of uh, the uh, 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 socialist countries. And uh, that, it seems to me, is the what underlying fundamental lessons of uh, Nixon in Beijing 50 years on. That's it. <laughs>